Good morning to everyone. Um, I bring my greetings and my condolences from Free Grace Baptist Church, from Pastor Butler, from the deacons, myself, and and from the congregation. Wonderful words, those spoken at the end of that scripture reading, that we have words of comfort that we speak to one another with respect to our blessed hope, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for sinners and rose again victorious. And with that, I'd like you to turn with me in your scriptures to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we want to look this morning at the gospel's indispensable glory. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to verse 20. This first letter by Paul to the church at Corinth is designed to bring an end to and to correct certain sins and errors that pervaded their particular context. And ever and always, as he's writing, he sets forth Christ, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, as that blessed remedy, the one remedy that kills death, that puts to death the grave that is victorious over hell, over the devil. Our blessed Savior is set forth as the blessed hope here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a passage rich with Christ. It's a passage rich with the gospel. And it sets forth Eric's hope and our hope. It sets forth his Christ and our Christ. It sets forth his Lord and our Lord. And we'll read now beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the triune God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your, you are still in your sins." Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits 
of those who have fallen asleep. Amen. Well, let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this opportunity to gather together as the saints of Christ on this your Lord's day. We do pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would bless our time in this exercise of worship, the preaching of the word. We pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would now attend the preaching of the word, that he would lift up the saints, that he would save sinners, that he would set forth by the preaching of the word, Jesus Christ, him crucified, him buried, and him raised again. We rejoice in this blessed hope, our hope in life and in death. We do pray, Lord God, that Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, would be exalted upon the praises of this gathered assembly. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as upon the subject of the gospel of our salvation, we contemplate God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we, by this subject, seek solace at a time of loss, I want to preface our observations this morning with some words of a of a Baptist in our theological heritage insofar as they present those words, the utility of the word of God in this regard, that regard being seeking solace at a time of loss. Charles Haddon Spurgeon spoke these words many years ago. He was musing on, he was preaching on the fact that the chief science, the chief school, the chief subject of Christianity is the blessed study of the triune God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And he speaks these words. Whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And as we arrive at a passage, 1 Corinthians 15, this is a passage rich with the promises of God. This is a passage rich with hope in Jesus Christ. And so in examining the gospel's indispensable glory, we want to note four things this morning, observing this blessed hope. And those four things are these, the importance of the gospel, the content of the gospel, the certainty of the gospel, and the great hope of the gospel. Now, just as we lead into these things, as we move into these things, we want to note the occasion for the writing of this portion of Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians 15. We can see at verse 12 something of the occasion for Paul penning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, Paul, of course, marvels in this departure, marvels in this deviation from the true and saving gospel of hope in Jesus Christ, and he renders, as we'll 
get to in a number of minutes, he renders this logical argumentation to set forth the truth that there is blessed hope in Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. But first off, let's note the importance of the gospel. We want to note first off in verses 1 through 3a with regards to the importance of the gospel that it is seen in wholesome repetition, apostolic confirmation, and the transmission of truth. Listen to the language that Paul brings here. First off, with regards to wholesome repetition, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. You see, Christians are in need of wholesome repetition. Generally speaking, because our food is, our meat is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the words of truth, the cause of God and truth brought forth in glorious revelation before us, setting forth Jesus Christ, His doing, His dying, and His rising again. As, as weak vessels in this lower world, as weak humans, yes, redeemed by amazing and victorious grace, we nevertheless need the blessed and wholesome repetition of gospel truth because that is the lifeblood of our Christianity. He writes here and he specifies or he declares that he had beforehand, of course, preached this very gospel to them. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. And it comes with apostolic confirmation. Paul is declaring again. This language of declaration comes with the weight of apostolic authority that Paul is bringing confirmation that over and against and in opposition to these notions that there is no resurrection of the dead, I bring to you by the authority of God Almighty and the risen Christ that there is most certainly a resurrection for the dead. And that is punctuated or founded upon the very resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself. Since Christ is risen from the dead, we have blessed hope in that. And it comes, or notice that the importance of the gospel is also seen here in the transmission of truth. This language that we have here of declaration and reception is blessed, blessed for Christians who have a respect and a high appreciation for our creedal history. And the fact that within the pages of the Bible, there is this respect for biblical and wholesome tradition. The apostle here declares to them and they receive. He himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, had appeared to Paul upon that road. Paul rehearses that in Galatians 1.12, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ revealed to him the gospel of truth. He received it from him, and now he passes it on through declaration and preaching to the Corinthians. 2,000 years removed from this blessed declaration, 2,000 years removed from the words of the Apostle Paul, we are still the blessed beneficiaries of the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we receive and that we preach. And might our generation be such that holds fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ and so transmits the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, the importance of the gospel is seen here in the fact that it is the ground of our salvation. Notice the language. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Of course, the importance of the gospel is seen in the fact that it is the ground of our salvation. We are not saved without the blessed doing, without the blessed dying and the rising again of the Son of God. 
and of course his intercession at the right hand of the majesty on high. We see the importance of the gospel and of course the gospel and we we get to the definition and the content of the gospel shortly but you're in a church that preaches the gospel and so we know what that gospel is and we, we can with shorthand say with the authority of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture, it is the doing, it is the dying, and it is the rising again of the Son of God incarnate. The importance of the gospel is also seen in its primary of, uh, primacy of place in Christian proclamation. Notice the language here in verse 3. For I declare to you first of all that which I also received. The gospel has primacy of place in Christian proclamation. The words of Poole are one of the principal articles of the Christian faith. The gospel is. This language doesn't bring to us language of chronology or language that the Corinthians were the first recipients of gospel proclamation by the Apostle Paul, but the fact that the gospel is of primary and first importance. Paul delivers to the Corinthians that which, uh, that which is primary, that which is of prime importance, and as we'll see, that is the life, death, and resurrection of our blessed prophet, priest, and king. Now, this gospel, this article of faith, this indispensable, indispensable doctrine, principle article of the Christian faith, is not only such upon its own merits, but also because in back of this gospel is the very doctrine of God himself, the one who is most holy, the one who is most wise, the one who is most loving, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. When we contemplate the riches of the gospel, when we contemplate the riches and the excellencies of Jesus Christ, we're called, of course, to also engage in sweet contemplations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That second of the blessed triune, of course, who took upon himself man's nature for our redemption and for our recovery. Also in back of this blessed and primary article of the Christian faith, in back of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the very eternal decree of God, who according to the wisdom the, the, his eternal wisdom and His eternal holiness, according to His free and immutable will, set forth in due time Jesus Christ to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And brethren, the, the gospel is the very reason for the Son of God to become incarnate, to, uh, to, to come into this world. We read in Philippians chapter 2 that blessed hymn to Christ, uh, hymn unto Christ uh, as unto God. We, we read that language of that one who is in the form of God, who did not count it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance, of man, uh, in appearance as man, the text says, he became obedient even unto the cross death. The purpose of the incarnation is found in the very gospel of Jesus Christ, his doing, his dying, and his rising again, which then brings us to the content of the gospel. And if we were to, to summarize what the content of the gospel is, we could use words like John Owen, the excellence of his person and the surpassing merit of his work. When we reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are doing that very thing. We are reflecting upon the excellence of the person of Christ, 
and the surpassing merit of his most blessed saving and redeeming work. So under the content of the gospel, we want to notice here three things. And those things are the grand subject of the glorious gospel, the blessed obedience and reward of the Son of God incarnate, and the redemptive blessings that accrue to us by virtue of the perfect work of Christ. Now, we see in here a definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, out in uh, ambiguous spirituality or in vague pseudo-Christendom, we have some false notions as to what the gospel is. The gospel is not about us. The gospel is not about our feelings. Uh, The gospel uh, is not found, defined in, in cute little poetic sayings such as, you know, preach the gospel, but when possible, use words. The gospel can only be preached with words. The gospel can only be declared with precious words. And the gospel is given to us here in definition that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is about Christ and Christ alone. The blessed historicity of his perfect work and the salvific blessings won victoriously by the perfection of his saving work. So first, the grand subject of the gospel, simply Christ. When we read that Christ died for our sins, we're called to a blessed reflection upon the excellence of his person. A ten-part sermon series could be mounted or launched from the simple word, that Christ. Because his person is so excellent. Because he is the blessed one. He is eternal God. He is very man. And he is one Christ, the mediator between God and man. He is very and eternal God. A truth so essential and so glorious to confess and a truth so horrible to deny. Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Blessed Jesus, eternal God. That blessed language of Philippians chapter 2, he, is in, he was in the very form of God having equality with God. You see, the Son of God, the second of the blessed triune, is not of a like substance with the Father, not of another substance from the Father, but consubstantial, that is, of one substance with the Father, co-eternal, co-glorious, and equal with the Father. He is the blessed one who spoke all things into existence in the undivided work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our blessed Christ, the Son of God, brought all things into existence. As we reflect upon the one who died upon Calvary's cross, what a blessed thing for our thoughts to mount up to the reality that He is the Creator of all things, that He is the Sustainer of all things, that He upholds all things by the word of His power. It's an amazing thing, and it is a blessed thing to have our thoughts wrapped around the blessed cross of the Lord Jesus Christ for eyes of faith, not to vainly imagine, but with eyes of faith to see Jesus Christ crucified upon Calvary's cross, 
And then again, for our thoughts to reflect upon the fact that the one who is there hanging upon the tree is the one who hung the stars in place. Very and eternal God, Jesus Christ, of one substance with Father and Spirit, one substance, power and eternity. Our blessed Jesus, very God, a very God, creator, sustainer, and redeemer. He is, of course, very man. Uh, A similar truth, critical to our Christian confession and vital to our salvation. When we read here that Christ, we're called to reflect not only upon his glorious deity, his equality with Father and Spirit, but to then reflect upon the fact that he took upon himself man's nature. You know, hopefully when you hear that that creedal language that the the second of the blessed triune God, the second of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, took upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and the common infirmities thereof. You don't just roll your eyes and say, ah, it's just some creedal language. It's blessed creedal and confessional language because it brings forth and sets forth from the Scriptures the reality that that one very and eternal God stooped low. He condescended from the pinnacle of glory to our lower shame to assume our nature that he might redeem and recover his elect. What a blessed truth we have in the fact of that Christ. He is very man. And the fact that he is very man, again, is a vital truth. Just as the unrivaled and unmitigated deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is an article of primacy of place, so too the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't mention this, but... This is some wonderful language from Cyril of Alexandria regarding the importance of the deity of Christ in the Christian confession. He speaks of those who deny the deity of Christ as those who spew forth the venom of the blood-defiled dragon. That, That sets forth, Cyril didn't play games with the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought not to either. Do we lead with this when those well-dressed people come knocking on our doors? Probably not. We engage in some Christian prudence, but with a firm grip upon the deity of Jesus Christ, we set before them with the same vigor that blessed truth and as well the fact that he is very man. Our very salvation is linked to the fact that he truly did assume humanity. What a condescension. What a glorious stoop that the Son of God engaged in to assume our humanity. The early church fathers would would speak with regards to this, saying that Christ did not simply take upon himself the portraiture of humanity. The, 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 uh, The unassumed is the unhealed is a common maxim in the early church. He took upon himself body and reasonable soul and without sin, and as man went about doing good and ultimately was put to death upon Calvary's cross for the salvation of his people. He is very an eternal God, this Christ. He is very man, this Christ. And he is yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And what a blessed Christ. There, there are thousands of sermons that mount up from the simple word Jesus, from the simple word Christ, from the simple word Son of God, from the simple words Son of Man. And so a reflection upon the gospel always has in that reflection the fact that we are to have sweet contemplations of the excellence of the person of Jesus Christ. 
We want to note, secondly, under the content of the gospel, the blessed obedience and reward of the Son of God incarnate. Notice the language there is tied up in this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So we want to notice first that He died. He died a cross-death obedience. There is again so much wrapped up in this language that Christ died and for our sins. The blessed truth that this one very and eternal God took upon himself our humanity, lived a life of obedience unto that cross death. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures is absolutely vital to the confession of Christianity and it is the stuff of Christian joy. That we rejoice in the death of Christ for what it means, and we'll get to that shortly, with respect to for our sins. But the blessed reality that Jesus Christ died. And you know, one thing that I believe has been lost in the modern church, and not, not among our churches, though we can always do better. But one thing that's been lost is marveling in the death of Jesus Christ. Given the excellence of his person, given the blessed nature and perfection of his work. And what I mean by marveling, it was common in the early church. For example, it's a common phrase in Chrysostom. He would say, attend, I entreat you and rouse yourselves. And he would then, he would then blessedly and wholesomely wax theological about the, the, the excellence of the person of Christ and the perfection of his work. We as a church ought to be such that say, attend, I entreat thee and rouse yourselves unto solemn and joyful contemplations that he very God, very man, yet one Christ died upon Calvary's cross for the salvation of sinners. They, the language of the, the early church and uh, throughout history in the context of marveling from the pulpit to the church and as a church in the truth of Christ it would always contrast the blessedness of eternal God with the ignominy and the shame of the assumption of humanity unto cross death. Language such as he who set the, the, the stars in place is fixed in place upon a tree. A horrible thing to tell, they would say, but a horrible thing not to tell. A horrible thing to, to tell because the creator of the universe, the one who set the galaxies in their orbits, the one who created the rolling spheres, the one who is ineffably sublime, took upon himself man's nature and died a death that was due to uh, that was due his people. What a blessed contrast we have. The creator, the creator of worlds, the one who hung the stars, was hung in place upon a cross, and he gave himself for guilty sinners. The words escape and phrases escape and clauses escape the preacher to accurately and, and with precision dwell perfectly and set forth perfectly Jesus Christ, him crucified upon Calvary's cross. What a blessed thing we have in Jesus. What a blessed thing we have in he died. We're to marvel in the blessed truth of God upon the cross working out the salvation of sinners. The Son of God in His assumed humanity dying for sinners and as we'll see, rising again. 
We ought to note here with the language of he died, we ought to note the willingness of our Savior. Christ was not a victim in the sense that he went by compulsion to the cross, that he was forced there, that he was an unwilling subject in the schemes of wicked humanity. He went willingly to the cross. He set his face as a flint to Jerusalem to be crucified upon Calvary's cross, to redeem sinners, to do and perfectly complete the work that the Father had sent him to do. The willingness of our Savior, Cyril of Jerusalem, the the Spurgeon of the early church said, Adam received the sentence, Cursed is the ground uh, in thy labors, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. For this cause Jesus assumes the thorns that he may cancel the sentence. Jesus willingly assumed the thorns that he might reverse the curse of the first Adam, our blessed last Adam upon Calvary's cross, working out the salvation of a multitude that no man can number. Notice as well, he was buried. This is a truth often passed over. We, we often speak of the one who died and rose again, which is right to do so. It's a blessed summary of gospel truth. Jesus Christ, the one uh, who saved sinners by his doing, by his dying, and by his rising again. But there is much significance in he was buried as well. First off, it is a testification to the reality of his death, and so the bearing of the curse. A blessed thing is the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it testifies to the veracity that is the certain truthfulness of his death, and so it testifies to the veracity that is the certain truthfulness of the bearing of the curse in the stead of his people. As well, it is a fulfillment of prophecy that Christ was buried. We can think of the words of our Savior himself. We could go back to the Old Testament, but consider the words of our Savior himself. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's also a declaration of the reversal of the Edenic episode. That simply means a reversal of the curse wrought upon humanity, upon Adam's progeny, by the fall. Matthew Henry speaks with regards to this observation in the burial of Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power, and now in a garden they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden Christ began his passion, and from a garden he would rise and begin his exaltation. He says, come see a burial that conquered the grave and buried it. A a burial that beautified the grave and softened it for all believers. The blessed work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, Lastly, with respect to his burial, it sets the stage for his resurrection from the dead. It is as as if a link between the death in testifying to its veracity and in setting the stage for what would come, his resurrection in great victory and in great power. Henry again speaks these words. He says, he writes, Thus without pomp or solemnity, is the body of Jesus laid in the cold and silent grave. Here lies our surety 
under arrest for our debts, so that if he be released, his discharge will be ours. Here is the Son of Righteousness set for a while to rise again in greater glory and set no more. Here lies a seeming captive to death, but a real conqueror over death, for here lies death itself slain and the grave conquered. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory. Thirdly, under his blessed obedience and reward, we see that he rose again the third day. Notice the language again here in 1 Corinthians 15, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. Those blessed words of the angel in announcement to the, to the onlooking disciples, he is not here, he is risen. A blessed hope of Christians, he is not here, he is risen. That is, he did not stay buried, he did not stay in the tomb, he did not see corruption, but rather being incorruptible, he was raised in power and in great victory. This blessed language of our Christian creed, he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. This speaks to the vindication of having completed the work he came to do. A blessed thing that we have in the resurrection and in the subsequent ascension of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is rewarded by the Father for the perfection of His mediatorial work. The perfection of His work, the glory of His work, the completion of His work, the satisfaction seen in His work is vindicated by Him being raised from the dead and being exalted subsequently to the right hand of the majesty on high. We have such blessed hope in our Christ, dead, buried, but raised again the third day. He rose again the third day also speaks to the the testification, just bear with this phrase, the testification of the veracity of our justification. That is, it testifies to the truthfulness that we are justified in the Blessed One, Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 speaks to this particular truth. He was delivered up for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. The blessed reality that in Christ's victory, we, those who are His, have victory in Him. And it punctuated victory over death, over hell, over sin, and over the devil. The blessed thing is we contemplate simply the work of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and those blessings, as we'll see in a moment, that accrue to us by virtue of the perfection of His work. But a blessed thing to reflect upon in the loss of a beloved who dies in Christ. That in Jesus Christ we have victory. He punctuated victory over death, the grave, hell, sin, and the devil by virtue of that blessed rising again the third day. He is victorious, our champion, the captain of our salvation, the blessed one, our prophet, priest, and king, was victorious over death, sin, and and the devil. Blessed rising again the third day. Blessed empty tomb. Blessed Savior raised. Blessed Savior now exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Brethren, thirdly, under the content of the gospel, we want to note here the redemptive blessings that accrue to us by virtue of the perfect work of Christ. Notice the language backing up in the passage For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. 
You see, the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God are not simply historical truths. They are historical truths. They most certainly did happen, but they are also soteriological truths. The Bible gives us theological commentary on the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God. He rendered active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death as our soul and whole righteousness. Christ Jesus, the perfect Savior, did all that the Father called him to do. And brethren, he did all that the Father called him to do in our stead. It was a vicarious, substitutionary obedience. And it was in his passive obedience, a vicarious and substitutionary death. Blessed substitutionary atonement on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. What a blessed truth. If you reflect upon sins, you know, it is not a wholesome exercise to be, to be carried off into to long, uh, untoward and undue reflections upon sin as if we were Catholics metaphorically flagellating ourselves and grieving over sins committed. But it is wholesome and it is Protestant to reflect upon the fact, as Spurgeon would say, to to peruse the diaries of our memories, for there the witnesses of our guilt have faithfully recorded their names, but to quickly fly to Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again for sinners. If we dwell upon the fact that prior to our being in Christ, prior to having been saved by victorious and amazing grace, we broke the law of God every hour, every day. We were those who violated the law of our creator, our sustainer. Even after having been saved by amazing and victorious grace, we have remaining corruption. We're not perfect. We fall. We stumble. We struggle. But you see, Christ died for our sins. We're not saved by deeds of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. By virtue of the perfection of the work of Jesus Christ, our mediatorial king, our sins are forgiven. What a blessed boon to the soul. What a blessed boon to reflect upon our own salvation, not because of the greatness of ourselves, but because of the exclusive greatness of our Savior, because of the greatness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who sent forth this Christ, sinners to save. We can reflect upon sins, but we quickly fly to that advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation and the expiation for our sins. Blessed Savior, Jesus is ours. His death, burial, and resurrection were not simply historical, but soteriological. That is salvific in that in him, we have the blessing of everlasting life. We are the blessed and undeserved beneficiaries of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Reflect upon that. We don't earn. We don't deserve. We have not merited. We have violated the law of God. We have broken each and every one of those ten words. And yet, the blessed truth is that the lawmaker became the law keeper in his condescension for us. That we might have a righteousness that avails with God. The covenant, the sovereign covenant maker became covenant keeper. 
that he might take covenant breakers and make them his own. His active obedience unto the whole law, his passive obedience in his death for our soul and whole righteousness, for our justification, and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Our, our, our election, our, our, our effectual calling, our justification, our, our faith and repentance, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, all of these blessed spiritual benefits in the heavenly places in Christ are ours by virtue of His perfect work. We can reflect upon that as not only the hope of the living, but also hope in death. Because in Jesus Christ we have such a Savior, such a glorious one who has gone before us to make a place for us. As we move towards a close, thirdly, at large, we want to see the certainty of the gospel. Notice the certainty of the gospel is first seen in the testimony of the word of God. Notice the language of the scriptures at this text that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This blessed repetition of, uh, of attesting to the power, the veracity of the word of the living and true God. Why would you depart? Why would some of you, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead when in Christ we have witnessed the resurrection of the dead? When in Christ the disciples and over 500 brethren at once have seen the resurrected Savior. When one, uh, when one called an apostle, uh, the apostle Paul has seen the resurrected Christ why, though, according to the Scriptures, why, though, with respect to the Word of God, why, though, with the declaration of the revelation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in view, how can you reject so blessed a truth? The Scriptures attest to this. According to the Scriptures, Paul writes, according to the Scriptures, he writes again, the blessed Word of the living and true God declares to us that there would be a Christ who would raise from the dead. One of the passages that speaks to this richly is, of course, the book of Acts. And you need not turn there if you are unable to. And I can read from there for you. But in Acts chapter 2, what a blessed scene we have with respect to the Scriptures attesting to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore, by virtue of that, the resurrection of His people. In Acts chapter 2, we have this blessed language beginning at verse 25. Notice this language. Well, actually backing up to verse 23. Speaking of Christ, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make, make me full of joy in your presence. David citing or speaking with respect to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Psalm 16. And notice the prophetic nature 
uh, ascribed to David. Men and brethren, verse 29, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What, a, what blessed words and blessed hope that we have in this language, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. A blessed forerunner, the blessed first fruits that goes before us, securing for us the reality of the resurrection of the dead, that we are not to be found without, without hope, but much rather we have hope beyond hope in Jesus Christ and in the resurrection of the dead. The testimony of the word of God. Cyril of Jerusalem says, since we have these prophecies, let faith abide with us. That is, that is the Apostle Paul's message here in 1 Corinthians 15 with regards to according to the Scriptures. Since then we have these prophecies, let faith abide with us. Secondly, under the certainty of the Gospel, we have eyewitness accounts. Notice the language moves from the certainty of the scriptural, uh, the, the certainty of the Scriptures concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the fact that he was seen by many. The language beginning at verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. The certainty of the gospel is seen both in the testimony of the Word of God and in the testimony of eyewitnesses. Don't you love, as Christians, the language of our, uh, of our evangelist Luke in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts? As Christians, we're often mocked that there is no certainty in our religion, that, that we're just following after, as Peter speaks, to cunningly devised fables. Rather, what we have in the Gospels is the certainty that these things have taken place. Luke, at the beginning of his Gospel, writes, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. You see that our Christian profession, our Christian confession, our confession of so great a Savior, His doing and His dying and rising again, the certainty of it is wrapped up in the blessed words of Holy Scripture, the very revelation of God, and in the certainty of the things that were instructed. We have the blessed truth that eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered the truth concerning this resurrected Christ. That we have, by virtue of a sovereign God who discloses truth and who brings forth truth, perfect understanding of all things from the very first. And the wonderful language of the same author regarding the certainty of the gospel as he opens up the second volume of his work. We read in Acts 1, the former account, that is the gospel of Luke, 
O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We have blessed hope and blessed certainty in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, under the certainty of the gospel, as we find our way back to the text, the certainty of the gospel is seen in divine grace empowering its proclamation. Notice at verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. You see, the power of divine grace... The the power of divine grace empowering these preachers of our blessed Christ to go forth and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to those near and far. The certainty of the gospel is seen in the testimony of the word of God in eyewitness accounts and in divine grace empowering its proclamation. Brethren, this is something that we ought to pray for, not only in our own contexts in the United States and in Canada, but throughout the world that divine grace would empower men to bring forth the gospel of Jesus Christ to those in need. Having known that it is Eric's hope, having known that it is our hope, having known that it is the only hope of sinners, we are to pray day in and day out, as often as we're called so to pray, that God would, by divine grace, empower those ministers of His to bring forth the blessed Christ to those in need. The blessed thing to pray for, to pray for your pastors, pray not only for your pastors, but pastors everywhere, for missionaries, for those sent by God, for those bringing the true and saving gospel of Jesus Christ to those near and far. We are to pray for those who bring the blessed truth of Jesus Christ, him having lived in perfection, died in saving perfection and having raised the third day in great power and in great victory. And lastly, brethren, we want to note as we close the great hope of the gospel. The great hope of the gospel. So we've seen the importance of it, the content of it, the certainty of it. And now we want to note the great hope of the gospel. First of all, it's very interesting. But what Paul is doing here is to set forth the implications if Christ has not risen from the dead. You notice the language getting back to the occasion of writing this particular portion of 1 Corinthians verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul marvels in the face of the fact that he had come to them before and had preached to them. Remember, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, in which they stand and by which they are saved. He marvels that they that some among them are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And now Paul moves into a beautiful logical argument, some if-then logical argumentation, setting forth the implications if Christ has not risen from the dead. If Christ is not risen, well, in fact, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 
perhaps they were, and they were confessing that Christ is risen, but they were rejecting or denying that there is the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of believers. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And all hope is lost then. And you can see the language here. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and it is empty. That this... This going forth by the Apostle Paul and this going forth of the disciples is all vanity if Christ is not risen from the dead. Why preach a risen Christ if he hasn't, in fact, been raised? It also reads, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Paul is mounting logical argument upon logical argument to arrive at verse 20 where the blessed hope comes. Notice as he continues, he would speak then or he speaks concerning Christians or preachers of the gospel then being liars if Christ has not been raised. Yes, and we are all we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. You see, this language moves forward and it mounts upon uh, the, the, the sentences, the clauses, the logical if-thens mount one upon the other. As we read on, we see the total loss if it is the case that Jesus Christ is not risen. Notice how the language continues. And if Christ is not risen, verse 17, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You know, in the, in the Bible, in the word of God, in the revelation of God to the sons of men, there are beautiful places in the scriptures where there is a shift then. This language, but now. We have wonderful but nows in, in our Bibles. We can, can think of that but now in Ephesians chapter 2 where it speaks of Sinners being dead in their trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the power of the air, the the sons of disobedience, walking according to the, the devil, the world, and the flesh. But Jesus Christ, but God in His infinite mercy and His eternal loving kindness. It's always a blessed thing as Christians as we're reading our Bibles to read our Bibles generally speaking, but to our point to to specifically arrive at these points where something is set forth, but then a a blessed but now comes. Notice verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Blessed hope we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. This blessed language, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Again, the language of the angels. He is not here. He is risen. The blessed truth, the fullness of joy and certain expectation of the resurrection of the dead. Do you know that our Christian hope is, of course, the only true and everlasting hope? The word hope can be, can be tossed around and it, and, it, and it can simply be in this lower world used to, defined as wishful thinking. You know, I hope such and such occurs. I hope such and such happens. I, you know, I've been hoping since the, the late 70s that the Vancouver Canucks would win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> but you see, that's not Christian hope. 
Our Christian hope is in the certain expectation that the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ the Savior. The certain expectation that God is true to His blessed promises, but now Christ is risen just as was promised. Just as was promised by the Word of God, just as was promised by Jesus Christ Himself. How many times did He Tell his disciples, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to be delivered up by wicked hands, to be crucified, but he will rise again the third day. The blessed promise of Christ having come true, Christ is risen, so therefore our preaching is full and rich with divine truth. It is not vanity. It is not empty. It is full and it is rich insofar as we accurately set forth the sovereign God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, insofar as we accurately set forth our blessed, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable one, glorious in all His perfections, insofar as we set forth our blessed Savior, the Son of God, the second of the triune God, who came down from heaven, sinners to save, assuming our blessed humanity, our preaching is full and rich with divine truth. It is not vanity. It is not empty. Our faith is complete and profitable. Sin no longer reigns, but Christ does in victory over it for us. And our brethren have not perished, but have everlasting life. And much contrary to this reality, that in this life, we, if we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, we are then by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most blessed and jubilant. Aren't we to be that? Because of Jesus Christ, our precious Savior, because of the one who did, the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who perfectly obeyed the law of the Father in the stead of all those who believe, the one who died a perfect death upon Calvary's cross, not a death of maybe, not a death of perhaps, but a death of certain atonement for all those who believe in His name. He rose again in vindication of the perfection of his work. He rose again the third day. He's now been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Blessed Savior, blessed King, we are then the most blessed and we are to be the most jubilant. So in closing, just a few observations. We are to reflect often upon the person and work of Christ. We we need this wholesome repetition of the excellence of his person and the perfection of his meritorious work. We are to reflect often upon the person and the work of Christ, our blessed hope, our blessed salvation, our blessed Savior. You know, we can lawfully contemplate and think about other things where we're not to spend 24-7 thinking, uh, reflecting upon the person and work of Jesus Christ or else we wouldn't be able to, to do our jobs and tend to our family and those sorts of things. You know what I'm saying. Far be it from those saved by such a Christ to reject reflection upon such a blessed Christ. We should never be so far removed from reflection upon Jesus Christ that we're somehow cold and detached. If that's the case, we need to repent and reflect upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are everything. For the sinner and for the unbeliever, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Given the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is the case then that any message opposed to Christianity 
is in fact emptiness. Unbelief is vanity and futile. Divine justice reigns. You will perish. And all outside of Christ are the most miserable of men. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God deserve justice, the the holiness and the wrath of God, not only in this life, but in that which is to come. But Jesus Christ came into this world sinners to save. What a blessed truth. Lay hold of Jesus Christ. Again, the Lord of Eric, Eric's Lord and our Lord, this one who is very an eternal God, who assumed our humanity for our redemption and for our recovery, don't be found to, to, to be wandering, to be sojourning in this lower world in emptiness, in unbelief, in vanity, in futility, under the wrath of divine justice. You will perish and you will be the most miserable of men. There is a Savior for sinners. There is one who came into this world, sinners to save, and look to him. And finally, give praise and find comfort in. Give praise to and find comfort in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the glorious hope found in Christ. Some words of of Samuel Rutherford that he spoke to a woman whose son had died. I think they're words fitting for our particular occasion, reflecting upon the hope found in Christ. In Jesus Christ, he said to the mother, he is not lost to us who is found in Christ. He has not gone away, but gone before. Like unto a star, which which shining, which moving out of sight does does not fade away, but, but shines in another hemisphere. You see, to mourn is human, To mourn is even Christian, though we do not mourn as the world mourns. And as Christians, and yet yet as Christians, mourning is joined by and even can quickly turn to cheer in the knowledge of the fact that our beloved one, that your beloved one, having passed before us, his faith is now sight. Blessed truth, his faith is now sight. He beholds the face of our King of grace by virtue of the resurrection of so blessed a Savior. I close with the words of a theologian of ancient times. Now may he himself, the God of all, who is Father of the Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ, who came down and ascended and sitteth together with the Father, watch over your souls. Keep unshaken and unchanged your hope in him who rose again. May God bless the reading of the word and the accurate preaching of it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your truth. We rejoice in what you have revealed to us concerning Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. It warms us. It cheers us. We are such as who are jubilant when we reflect upon the doing and the dying and the rising again of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We pray, Lord God, that you would impress upon us this blessed hope, this blessed reality, this blessed truth, that one very and eternal God assumed man's nature for our redemption and for our recovery, and that our faith is not empty, but it is strong in its fullness. 
that we have the riches and the excellencies of Jesus Christ as our own, that, Lord God, we are saved by so great a Savior, so great a Redeemer. Do bring us often to sweet reflections upon the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, that you would comfort us, that you would comfort these, that you would comfort the Lindblad family and this church, Lord God, in the knowledge that Eric now, his faith is now sight, Lord God, that he casts his eyes of sight upon the King of Grace. We long for that one day when we will not be separated from the church triumphant, but we will rejoin them as those brought together with them by the Savior who will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Cheer our souls now, cheer our hearts now in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and may our blessed Savior be exalted upon the praises of this gathered assembly. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our redeeming King. Amen.